Welcome back to Being Invested with me, Susanna Nicklin. This is the podcast about the personal stories of the people who make the markets. Today's episode with my brilliant guest, Robin Hindle Fisher, packs a punch. It's a story about the power of self-belief and tenacity, bold lifelong learning and reinvention, and how great investment firms need leaders who know how to invest and how to lead. I have had the pleasure of getting to know Robin since he became the non-executive chair of Big Society Capital here in the UK on its 10th anniversary last year, following tenfold growth in the UK social impact investment sector over the decade. Robin brings to his leadership the lived experience of social inequality, having been born with disabilities caused by the drug thalidomide. I'm hugely excited to share this conversation with you. Robin is one of those people you wished you'd known all your life. He has great judgment, stratospheric EQ, takes action with decency and determination, and wrestles with the hardest things with optimism. Our conversation is wide-ranging across personal and professional terrain. We hear how being told not to bother applying for a top city job simply wet Robin's steely determination and competitive edge and why he thinks the best place to be in asset management right now is in impact investment. I enjoyed it immensely, and I hope you do too. Thank you so much for listening to Being Invested. And if you like the podcast, please stay tuned for future episodes and spread the word. Hello, and welcome to Being Invested. My guest today is Robin Hindle Fisher. His career has spanned executive and non-executive roles in the investment management industry, and he's been a charity sector trustee for over 20 years, as well as practicing as a business coach to ex-co-level corporate executives for the last 14 years. Robin grew up in South Wales, but was at school as an expat in England and went on to university at Durham, where he was president of the DU Athletic Union which is now called Team Durham, and also a non-playing secretary of the DU Rugby Football Club. Robin started his career as an equity analyst and portfolio manager and went on to be managing director of Henderson's pension fund business and later chief executive of Phillips and Drew Fund Management. He served on the boards of a number of disability charities, including Contact, the Family Fund and Scope, and was chair of the Extra Costs Commission in 2014 to 15. In midlife, Robin went back to school and did the Sloan program at London Business School, which he describes as an MBA for old people, but is in reality a master's in management, leadership, and strategy, and also went on to gain an MA in coaching psychology and an MSc in executive coaching. Robin was awarded an OBE for his services to the financial services sector in the Queen's Honours List in December 2018. Along with chairing BSC, he is currently a governor and chair of the Grant Making and Innovation Committee at the Motability Foundation, a non-executive director at Oldfield Partners, and a founding partner at the business coaching firm Hay Hill Partners. Robin cheekily describes his interests as wine, women, his wife, two daughters, and granddaughter, and song, but only while watching his beloved Wales rugby team. Robin, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's such a privilege to have you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Great pleasure, Susanna. So I'd really love to start way back, uh, rewinding and thinking about what it was you wanted to be when you grew up and how your family and school and uni years influenced the career choices that you made. Yeah, great question, Susanna. Uh, and thank you for having me on on the podcast. Yeah, I'd love to be able to tell you that I was always passionate about becoming an investor and was sort of destined to become one uh, from an early age. Uh, I'm afraid that's really not the case. I'm not sure I can remember what I wanted to be when I when, when I was little, when, uh, but certainly wasn't an investment manager. Um, my father was a lawyer. My elder brother was one too, and I think it was always rather assumed by me and by others uh, that I'd become a lawyer too. Then when I came close to applying to university, uh, I'll be honest, reading law looked like really rather hard work. Uh, So I opted to do a a non-vocational degree, admittedly at that stage, thinking I would then do law uh, later. Um, But again, when it came to looking at careers, I suppose this was in the early 1980s. um, The city was regarded as as the place to work. 
uh, at that at that time. Uh, so I started um, looking looking for jobs in the city. Uh, and you, you, your question jogs my memory, actually, Susanna, because there was a sort of I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a sort of person who has aha moments, but this was a bit, I guess, a bit of an aha moment. I was talking to the father of a of a, of a then very good friend about working in the city and where he'd recommend. Um, and he mentioned what were then called the merchant banks, which was, I suppose, a fairly elite group of uh, British banks. And he said that those were the sort of the place to work if you could get in. But he said I probably wouldn't get accepted by them because I was I'm a bit of an outsider, no, including because of my disability. Um, and that was the greatest motivator I could could have heard, Susanna. Um, mm. so I would say it was a red rag to a bull. Mm. Um, so I I certainly applied to all of them. I was actually offered jobs by or graduate trainee roles by three of them, uh, and I joined uh, what was then called Climate Benson, uh, which was one of the leading merchant banks in the UK, um, and. After six months of uh, going around different departments, I chose to go into the investment division um, because it seemed to me to be certainly the amongst the most interesting roles, but also because it served a community outside the city. I preferred I preferred the idea of sort of doing providing a service to you know, like real people or real organisations like pension funds and private clients rather than serving other financial institutions. Uh, so that's how I got into investment management. Uh, once I was in, uh, again, with the benefit of hindsight, life's so much easier with hindsight. I think it was became fairly clear that I was a pretty reasonably competent fund manager, but that wasn't really what sort of excited me or what I was particularly good at. So I gravitated on probably a bit earlier than most people do onto leading and managing people internally and leading and managing relationships on behalf of the organizations I work for. So in a sense, with hindsight, it was the the people, the people dimension and the organizational dimensions of, of, of financial services and investment management that really excited me. We'll come on to that and how that surfaced uh, throughout the rest of your career as well. But, I'd like to go back to what you mentioned, which is the story of someone telling you you probably wouldn't get into something that you thought actually sounded quite appealing and how motivating that was. And also the assumptions that that person made about you potentially at that point. And um, you mentioned that you had a disability. And as I said in the introduction, you were born with disabilities caused by the drug thalidomide. Yeah. Um, and you've written that while you enjoyed privileges in life, uh, you also really know what it means as a result of that to be an other in society. And I'd be really interested to understand how you have found at that stage in your life having a disability affected those decisions. You've just shown one a great example of of how did actually um, uh, refuting someone's assumption about what was possible for yourself. You know, actually, it was a very significant uh, played a significant role in in uh, in the career uh, progression that you had. But any other stories or um, reflections on how your having a disability affected the choices that you yeah. had uh, would be really interesting to hear about. Yeah, it's actually uh, interesting to me, at least. I think being disabled is something I've only relatively recently, so in later life, started to really to come to terms with. Uh, I always say I feel I was very lucky, I had a relatively privileged background, particularly a loving and very supportive family. I had a cloistered and reasonably good education, um, but probably most importantly, an upbringing that infused confidence in me and an attitude that I was a peer of able-bodied people, uh, not a victim or a, or a second-class citizen. And I think it was all of that that meant I pretty much ignored the fact that I was a, <laughs> that I was disabled for most of my life. Um, and when I look back on it, I was bullied a bit at school, not, not horrifically, but a little bit. Uh, and I certainly got used to being stared at by people. And I think having to make conscious effort to get accepted or to be accepted into what I now would call friendship groups uh, or organisations or teams or, 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 or clubs. Um, but I'd say I think, I, I think I'm lucky that could have scared, scarred me, um, but I think actually it inbred it bred resilience in me, and I think a heightened sem sensitivity 
to the impact that I have on other people. Um, so would I choose to be disabled if I had, uh, if, if I could wave a magic wand? Of course not. Um, uh, but it has also had some positive effects uh, on me and my life. Um, and I'm always keen to, in a sense, tell that story. Well, I am now keen tell, to tell that story to other, to other disabled people, but with the caveat that in my in my mind that you know, I was lucky. I I had many privileges in life, which very sadly a lot of disabled people do not have. And it sounds like the 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 love, the support, the attitude that was nurtured at home was really foundational for that. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, yeah. And I, I was unusually close uh, to my mother. My father died when I was pretty pretty young. And I was very 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 close to my mother, but I'm also realistic enough to know that uh, her overwhelmingly positive uh, positive effect on me was perhaps driven by. A mixture of motivations. I mean, having a disabled child in the in the sixties was a much more stigmatized uh, event than it is now. So I think her her desire for me to lead a normal life uh, was overwhelmingly positive for me, but also uh, was was to to reduce the the embarrassment and ridiculously the the guilt that she felt. I mean, then there's no reason, absolutely no reason for her. She should have felt guilty. Uh, that she took the drug that caused my my disability, but the fact is she did feel guilty. And I think helping me integrate into what you might call normal life, mainstream life, was very well meant for me, and it served me incredibly well, but it also, I think, so, served her needs as well. There was a very inspiring article in uh, 2018 that I read that you debated the label of inspiring that is sometimes used to describe you and others who have found ways to live very full and and successful lives, even with or alongside a disability. And I was really interested in your wrestling with that as a as a as a as a as a fact, and that there's different ways people with disabilities feel about that, obviously. And one thing you wrote was that, in fact, coming out is something that has been a, a way of thinking about that for you. You know, we often use coming out in terms of sexual identity or preferences. And I personally have been interested in it for a long time, having a sibling who came out when I was in my teens. Yep. And I wondered what it means to you and how you've said only recently you've talked about it or in some ways noticed yep. <laughs> having been so deliberately living life fully the rest up until that point. What what did coming out mean to you and, yep. and how 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 did that get it, that sort of triggered? Blimey, Susanna, you, you've certainly done your research. Yeah, the article um, was in response to another article by a much younger disabled person who was complaining about being referred to as being inspirational. Uh, uh, other people found her inspirational because of her ability to sort of cope with life. And she very reasonably wanted to be treated like everyone else um, and felt that being singled out and called inspirational was sort of pointing out her disability. I do take a slightly different view, um, no doubt reflecting my 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 age probably and, and the era in which I grew up uh, with disability. And I think it's a reality that having arms that are less than half the size of other people's does make me different. Um, I do have to cope uh, with some aspects of life that, uh, that other people find easy. And I can understand why people give me a second look because you don't often see people uh, like uh, like me uh, on it or you don't on a day-to-day -day basis um but at the same time i absolutely expect and indeed i am happy to fight for uh, the right to be treated as an equal uh, so the concept of fairness uh, is very important to me the reason why i say i i came out and i use that term provocatively to 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 to, to, to sort of prompt conversations like this one really uh, as being disabled was really a sort of a realization that the fact that i had pretty much ignored the fact that i was disabled i certainly would always have 
would never have put being disabled very high on my list of ways I defined myself. I realized that by doing that, I was effectively, well, I was really not helping the disabled community. Um, I think by what I think implicitly I was saying that for somebody who has achieved what a lot of people would regard as sort of conventional success in terms of jobs and financial success and so forth, that somebody with who has achieved that that success is then not prepared to identify them as disabled is in effect underlining that that the the, the, the the stigma around disability. So while I don't particularly regard myself as having been successful, others do. Um, so I'm keen to sort of to sort of come out and say, yes, you can be disabled and be lead a successful life. Um, and hopefully that's uh, a good a, a good counter to some people who still think being disabled is a sort of life sentence. Uh, and if it's inspirational to other disabled people that they can achieve more than perhaps others think they can, um, then that would be great. And you've reflected just now, um, on, on, on something I thought was really interesting, that it's in some ways helped you be more sensitive and cognizant of your impact on other people. And maybe by extrapolation, how people generally impact other people. Uh, we'll come on to impact in yep. other contexts later. But um, I'm just a really fascinated by that. And and that leads on to a question which I wanted to get to, which is, how has your image of yourself and your personal narrative that has threaded through your career and decisions that you've made about your professional life, how have you cultivated that? And has the disability, your disability been a part of that? It sounds like it wasn't earlier, or at least not intentionally. And did you think of yourself as a leader? The things that I mentioned in the intro about what you did at Durham, you know, playing leadership roles in sports, those sound like you were actively comfortable being a leader and that you wanted to take responsibility for organizations even quite early. And I'm just interested to know how that um, mental map has shaped you. Yeah, great, great, great question, Susanna. I would actually say, well, actually, I would definitely say I'm a, I apply a pretty pessimistic attitude to myself and my abilities. So I always prepare myself for the worst and for failure. Um, but then I'm highly motivated to succeed and pretty competitive to achieve at least as much as other people. And that's fairly clearly a coping mechanism that I think reflects my childhood when I had to get used to having to put quite a lot of effort into doing things that others around me found very easy. Um, so it was a way of helping myself and probably my mother as well, except that if I couldn't do things, it's all used to use that cliche, it wasn't the end of the world. Uh, I was I was sort of preparing myself for that. So I guess the sort of a personal narrative I have is that I'm somebody who is averagely talented, um, but who can achieve things if I put a lot of effort uh, into them. So I think that's sort of, I suppose is I haven't really thought about whether that's my narrative before, but I think that's probably not a not a not a bad way of of, of describing it. Mm. Um, and as for being a leader, um, it is something I've always enjoyed. So I was you know, head boy at my prep school, head boy at my senior school, and as you say, had a reasonably senior uh, elected role as a senior into a senior leadership role at university too. I think, with in retrospect. I think oh, the strongest motivator for all of those was that need to demonstrate to everybody, including myself, um, that I was as good as the next person, or possibly when I was younger, wanted to be a little bit better than the next person as well. That that strong competitive urge was there. More latterly, um, I think the experience of having been a leader in an, in my earlier life really gave me the confidence in organisations to sort of put my neck on the block um, and to take responsibility for getting things done when others were perhaps happier to sort of go with the status quo. So I think the, the first time in a professional environment, the first time I was chosen for a leadership role was because I was fairly vocal about uh, some of the failings of the organisation I was then working for and um, wanted wanted to improve them and was, as I say, prepared to point them out and prepared to say, okay, well, I think I've got some solutions as well. Um, 
later in my life now, I would say my mental map suggests that I'm very comfortable being a leader, and I am in a few roles, um, but only if my style of leadership is appropriate and is wanted by the organisation. Um, but also feel I'm equally happy, equally happy being being led, as long as I feel I have some influence over the strategy and the outcomes of the entity that I'm um, um, that I'm part of. It sounds that the motivation early was actually to prove that you were as good, if not better, and because things maybe did take more effort. And naturally, um, in some ways, you were different visually than yep. other people. You worked hard. There was that effort was a key part of your persona. That I'm really interested in the fact that laced through this is that you're comfortable with noticing things that aren't working. <laughs> um, and some people aren't that comfortable calling that out you know I don't know if that resonates but it feels like there's a comfort with looking at the whole spectrum of life (laughs) and an organization's um an organization's health and where they maybe need to work harder to succeed yeah no that that, that's true again if I look back on my life and probably it's definitely still true now I always think you can always do better however well you're doing uh, whether it be personal development or career or performance generally, um, there's, all, there's always scope to improve. And I think I've always applied that to organisations I've been in, sometimes to the frustration of others, um, uh, never never entirely happy with what the situation is and wanting to, wanting to move it ahead or change it. Um, but that has been part of it. But I think I would say, my, picking up your point about motivation, I'd say my motivation has very definitely shifted uh, as I've got older. I mean, historically, maybe until my early 40s, I was definitely motivated by what I call conventional success. So getting recognition, getting the top jobs, getting the right titles, driving the right car, living in the right places, sending my children to the right schools. Um, No doubt driven, as I said earlier, and you've you've touched on that desire to prove to myself and to the world um, that, 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 that that I was able to do things. Um, I think it's not why I chose to do it, but I think my year at business school when I was in my early 40s, 42, really opened my thinking to a much wider landscape. And I I came to realise that it was the sort of the people and the building relationships in in professional life and indeed in in all aspects of life, that those are my overwhelming motivators. Um, and that's really now how I build my my what I build my professional life around. Um, so while I'm using big society capital as an example, uh, while I'm passionate about what we as an organisation do, the the sort of aspects that attracted me was the style of leadership that the organisation had decided it needed from its chair uh, uh, and the type the type of senior senior person. They want wanted wanted to influence the organisation and, and, and the culture. Um, that was that was at least a strong motivator for me wanting to apply to, for the role as as, as, as what the organisation does. So really, a relational orientation. So relationships as the motivation. It sounds that the business school experience something happened there where that recognition took place what what yep. was it what can you describe or what made you recognize that for yourself yeah that's good. That, again a very good question well, i think a number i think by year there did a number of things most importantly demonstrated that i could you could just step off the conveyor belt of 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 career career progression uh and that there was there was more more to the world uh than the success of your organisation, the success of you in the, you in your in your career, um, so that alone was the sort of, I think the, the the biggest change. But I think it sounds very simple now, very rather basic. Just sort of studying aspects of organisational life helped me reflect on them much much more clearly than than I ever had before. And I think it's probably fair to say that I was regarded 
not always often regarded in the organizations I worked for as a sort of slightly strange. I was interested in the people aspects and the organizational aspects more than perhaps the, the core activity of doing the investment. Uh, and that was that was perhaps not seen as uh, an obvious an obvious way way to proceed. When I went to business school, I realized that that is actually a very powerful way to look at organizations and picking up your point about the feeling that I'm a very relational person. My sort of overwhelming or overarching belief is that organisations are merely uh, a series, a series of multiple multiple relationships. So the relationships really are at the the core of what every organisation does, and that understanding those and uh, being thoughtful and aware, and conscious of how you build relationships was something that that, that, that I learned was not just sort of something odd that I was interested in, but actually something that was well well researched and, and well regarded. I really want to get onto that too, um, as a podcast about investing. I think what's yeah. also interesting is how investors uh, operate within organizations. So I want to come on to that. But before I do, just while we're still on the subject of how you're sort of mentality and skills were built. And as you look back, are there books or mentors or um, thinkers that really influenced your mm-hmm. development and whether it was at, at the at, at business school or elsewhere that you, you still use as touchstones now? Golly, uh, it's quite hard to choose. Um, having mentors has been much more important to me uh, than books or, or or authors, and although I wouldn't necessarily call them or thought of them as as mentors at the time, I guess perhaps because of my relational attitudes, I have been lucky enough to have a whole series of of great influences on me and my career and throughout my working life, uh, and more latterly as well, um, helping me make the transition from full time exec- executive in financial services to to work to working as a as a business coach as well. So I do think this is a completely uh, congruent or completely consistent with my relation, relational um, perspective on life. I think the power of mentors um, is, is, is really, really important in life. Yes, I have to say, uh, my observation is that too. And I wish I'd learned that earlier in my life. And I really enjoy being a mentor now, actually. Um, yeah. And I imagine you... Um, are a terrific mentor to many people as well. Um, just going on to the uh, interesting point that you'd raised about investment as a function and investment organizations, investment companies as something that always fascinated you, even when you were doing the investment <laughs> and maybe seemed like the outlier in the group. But I have often wondered and talked with with colleagues about what it takes to run a good investment management company and are investors themselves really good leaders of investment management companies and I'd love to know your thoughts on that um, and that topic really of investor versus the the business of running investments and I'd be fascinated to hear to, to really hear your thoughts on what creates excellence within an investment management business and what qualities it takes to lead one. And if that's changing, given the digital yeah. life we lead now yeah. and to other, other forces at work. To be completely honest, I do have quite an extreme view on this topic that many people would now regard as being very old-fashioned. I believe that uh, active investment management, so take, taking active active views rather than uh, investing passively or quantitatively is much, the way I describe it, I think it's much more of a craft uh, than an industry. I think there are too many, there's too much investment management in the world, too many individuals, too many companies doing it. And while I think investment managers should have processes and rigor, I think it's best pursued in relatively small entities that are owned, run, and led by investors. Um, so I'm not a big fan of the investment firms that are owned by big financial conglomerates um, or those that are run by professional managers um, who are no doubt incredibly talented, um, but who know, know very little about the trials and tribulations of uh, of running portfolios. But let's also be realistic. Uh, is the quality of management or leadership within the investment management industry superb? Uh, no, I don't think it is. 
Um, and I think give it give it the accolade of call it a profession for a moment, but professional in professional services, being the best practitioner often means you end up being the boss or being mm-hmm. the, the leader. Um, and that I think is a is a fundamental mistake. I think investment firms are better if they're run by people who understand investment, people who've done investment. But I think the sort of the quid pro quo that is that organizations need would be would do themselves a service if they valued the leadership functions rather more. Um, so if it wasn't just what you do if you're not the most successful fund manager, but actually it was what you should do if you have the skills and the organization should then support developing those skills uh, in, in people who've done fund management who can then progress onto leadership roles. So I think the investment industry should take its leadership uh, a bit more seriously. Um, but similarly, I think or the best the best outcome is managers who do understand and have some uh, some experience in doing the job. So actually, investors themselves the 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 the, the best case investment firm, if you will, if you were if you had a magic wand, would be a smaller boutique run by the investors making the portfolio decisions and, uh, and the investors respecting that one of one of them or some 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 small group within them should take responsibility for some aspects of running the business and they they could be they could be the 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 primas interparus um and to respect that and to see that as a very valid role and a, and a crucial role to the firm's success um but i think it is better to have people who understand what it's like running a portfolio it's not that simple it's quite a stressful uh, job it's better to have the people running the organization who understand that uh, than people who are regarded as a just a, a process or a function I'm, I'm picking up something else you said Susanna. i think i was reading something recently by one of the big um, search firms who specialize in the sector and they were advocating a new breed or a new type of ceo and they were saying that in in the digital world the ceos are going to have to be um, sufficiently uh, dig- digitally orientated in order to be effective, um, and therefore advocating bringing in managers and leaders from other from from other other industries. And I get their point. Um, uh, and clearly, being up to date with uh, the way with, with the ways the way that services are going to be just distributed in a digital era is going to be crucially important. Um, but in a sense, I hope they're wrong. That means de facto that you have to have. The, the, the most senior leaders need to be from outside the industry. And your comment earlier about how you grew up preparing for failure, but failure wasn't the end of the world. Is that a, a, a mantra that is useful in your view and in investment firms as well? Um, I think any investor who says that dealing with failure is not part of part of what they do is uh, either kidding themselves or trying to kid you know, kid, kid their client or their, their customer. Uh, dealing with portfolio decisions that don't go the way that you want them, want them to go is absolutely fundamental to to being a fund manager, and that is related to why I think the best leaders of fund management organisations are those who have been through that and understand it. And the particular style of investment that that, that I I sort of come from, uh, which is called value investment, uh, is about buying things that are out of fashion uh, and then selling them when they're in fashion, when, th- when things go well. And that is one of the things that sounds incredibly simple to do, but it's much more, much, unfair, it's much more difficult to do. And you do need the support of an organization to maintain the confidence to carry on carrying on buying things when they're out of favor, uh, even when they've, got, they've become even more out of favor than they were when you first bought them. Um, and that's when I think professional managers uh, can can take the view that okay, well, this has gone on too long now. We just we need to change strategy, or we need to change fund manager, or change 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 our approach. Uh, and that means you miss uh, the um, the upside. You you miss you miss the improvement that, that will come uh, with patience. You've mentioned leadership styles. You've talked about collaborative leadership. Um, and a lot of this comes from a experience over the last 14 years of being an executive coach. And that is a departure from the career you'd had beforehand. And you made a midlife change. Uh, and I've seen in some things you've said elsewhere that you really are an advocate of making radical changes, especially at mid-career and of course, you've walked the walk in doing that. I think it would be really interesting to talk about your journey 
from investment management into what you're doing more full-time now as an executive coach. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily an advocate of, of, of midlife um, change, but I'm certainly supportive if if others are thinking thinking of changing path and, and I very much encourage it, people to sort of give it a go uh, if they're thinking of it. It worked very well for me, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it work, work, work will work, work necessarily well for others. And for me, as I mentioned earlier, to use the same analogy, stepping off the conveyor belt of a big job and everything that goes with that. Uh, when I went when I went to London Business School, when I think I was forty two, um, made me realise that there were more options uh, in life uh, than, or in my career, than I perhaps originally imagined. It's not why I should, it's not what I thought I was going to London Business School to do. I thought I was going for uh, a year out after a pretty intense period, and that I would go back very much into the sort into the same stream as it were um and indeed what i did do was to go back uh into the city after immediately after i was at london Business school um but it became increasingly clear to me that i wanted more change uh in my career than uh, than i perhaps had realized earlier um so it was actually seven years after i finished the sloan program uh, that I decided to step off the conveyor belt again uh, and decided to become a coach. I'd had a coach myself when I was doing the, the CEO job at Phillips & Drew. Um, I found it incredibly powerful for me at the time. I don't think it's necessarily what everybody thrives on, but it certainly was very useful for me. Um, so I was aware of, uh, in a sense, the, the the efficacy and the power of coaching for some people in some circumstances. But again, one of the few aha moments I've had in my life uh, was uh, back in 2008, I think it was, uh, when I was asked to have a rather formal lunch with a with a, with a uh, colleague who used to work with me in a previous role. We'd always kept in touch after we left. And cutting a long story short, he wanted some input or advice on some career issues that he had at the time. And although I wouldn't have said it at the time, we, I basically spent an hour coaching him over lunch and I can remember walking back to my office thinking well that's certainly the most interesting thing I've done or the most rewarding thing I feel I've done in a in a, in a professional sense for the, for the in the last few months this was during the global financial crisis so it probably didn't have much much competition in fairness um, <laughs> uh, and by the time I got back to my desk he'd already very sweetly emailed me saying thank you so useful to talk that through with you nobody else I had really I could talk to it talk about it with and that that event sort of made me think, well, he seemed to find that useful. I certainly enjoyed doing it. Uh, I know that you can become a coach because I had a coach myself. Maybe this is something I should I should pursue. So cutting, as I say, a very, very long story short, uh, I decided then to, as far as I was concerned, I thought I was leaving the city to fully lock, stock and barrel and started my training as a coach uh, and intended to work full-time as a coach. As it's happened, very, very fortuitously for me, that's ended up being combining three or four or four or five days a week as a coach with also being a non-executive uh, director in, in the financial services sector. Um, and that's so that, that particular combination works very well for me. I think the, the style, the type of non-executive I am is quite similar to being a coach. So I think there's a lot, there's more, there's more overlap in the two roles than I imagined when I, when I first started being a non-exec. So I think the, the two do complement each other very well. In terms of the sort of skills and attributes I've I've had to uh, learn or develop to be a coach, it's about being a good listener, to use the, the, the jargon or the cliche, being an active listener. So being able to ask appropriate open, open questions. Um, and I think then to find the right balance for each client of supporting them and challenging them. Um, so all the coaching I do is paid for by companies. Uh, so I do feel some responsibility to the company to make sure that I'm helping the client develop into a more confident and more competent uh, in themselves and therefore, a, in a sense, a, a more productive employee. And that does involve challenging. And I generally coach relatively senior people to so having the confidence to challenge to challenge people who are doing pretty big jobs. Uh, is something that I, I needed to, to think about and develop as I, as, I, as I became more experienced. What circumstances or 
moments in a career do you think really lend themselves to getting a coach? Uh, you know, is it a good investment for people? Should it be seen as an investment? And yeah, just a little, a few thoughts on on how someone who hasn't been coached before might think about um, availing themselves of that. Yeah, the first thing I would say is I think coaching is a very, very powerful or can be a very, very powerful intervention, but it is not for everybody. Um, Some people will find it very, very useful. Others won't. Uh, So I think if you're thinking of doing it, give it a go, try it out, but be open minded whether whether it's going to whether it's going to work for you. I think there are sort of typically three, in my experience, three triggers for for coaching. First of all, the one that I generally try and avoid very much which we might call remedial coaching. So if somebody has got uh, a real problem in the way that they work, um, a coach will often be employed to help them come to terms with that problem and, and change it. I generally, not always, but generally don't don't work with clients in that in that bracket. I tend to work in, with clients in the other two brackets, which is either people who are moving from being what I call a practitioner expert uh, into being a leader or a manager or a divisional head for the first time. So having been generally pretty good at the core activity of the organization to then moving into leading and leading and managing other people. So that's a very good opportunity, a very good moment for, for coaching. And then to some extent, at the other end of the sort of managerial spectrum is people who, who are in very senior positions, if you like to use the jargon, C-suite roles, uh, where what I, what I call the loneliness of leadership uh, is often uh, quite a significant factor. So for the, for people in that sort of role, particularly if their their responsibilities are widening or changing, uh, or the organisation is changing or being taken over or taking always taking over other companies going through a merger or a transaction, it's then very useful for them to have uh, a trusted advisor, a trusted partner, talk things through with somebody who's got no agenda other than helping them be more effective uh, than they otherwise would, otherwise would be. Uh, is is a very powerful opportunity then. It's a very powerful, trusted role. And yeah. it must take a lot of gravitas and uh, authenticity to cultivate that trust um, with somebody at that level. How have you found people who are very successful, who have a lot of power, who have maybe some of that loneliness? How does challenge land? Yeah, um Often when I start with with people who are already in very senior roles, they're often not used to being challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right, building I mean, trust is a, is a simple word, but it's a, it's a big concept. Uh, but building their, their trust that when I do challenge them, uh, I'm doing it to help them, not to contradict them for the sake of it, or not to not, not to try and prove them wrong. And I'm doing, doing, them, doing it to help them think things through more clearly. Building that, that trust is at that level is extremely important. Um, and I've certainly had clients who do find being challenged quite difficult, uh, often find it uh, something they're just not used to, as so heavily helping people who've been used to having their own way um, appreciate the value of challenge from me and to some extent the value of, 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 of input from others mm-hmm. uh, is, is a very important role. And you may, we mentioned we both mentioned trust, and it is absolutely fundamental to to good coaching and to, to good, any good helping relationship. Partly for the reasons I've mentioned already, that that confidence that challenge is being directed for the right re- is directed to the right reasons. But also, perhaps even more fundamentally, when clients really trust their coach, and that's much broader than just the confidentiality aspect, but trust them in the sense that they know that they will receive what they hear in an appropriate way, then that hopefully makes them makes them more comfortable in revealing their real vulnerabilities. And when clients are able to discuss their real vulnerabilities, that's when coaching can be its most efficacious, if you like, putting down, putting down the mask that all of us have, have on to a greater or lesser extent in professional life. You are now, as I mentioned, chair of Big Society Capital. You've also um, have have other important non-executive roles and trusteeships as well. And you wrote in a bio that I read that you subscribe to Winston Churchill's view that market capitalism is the worst economic system, except for all the others that have been tried. I wondered, because we both are involved in 
social impact investing in the UK. And I'd really be interested to understand your view on whether it takes a different mentality or value system to be an impact investor. Not everybody is familiar with what impact investing is. So maybe you know, just a, an observation now that you've been in the role for a year as to what if there is for someone who hasn't participated in the market in any way, is there is there anything that you need to believe to be an impact investor? Or is it really just another asset class or a strategy within the spectrum of investing? Yeah, um, yeah first of all, you're, you're, you're right. I plagiarized uh, uh, Churchill's comment. He was actually talking about democracy being the, the worst of all political systems, barring all the others. So I plagiarized it and applied that to um, uh, to capitalism uh, being uh, the least the least bad of all, all the potential alternatives versus all the potential alternatives that I'm that I'm aware of, and I do think that is right. Um, well, thank you for correcting that. Uh, completely plagiarized. I take no <laughs> take no um, uh, benefit from that. I think. I mean, let's be clear: the the type of social impact investment that big society capital does is very much at the sort of the cutting it the cutting edge of of, of impact investment. Uh, we're investing. Sometimes where literally nobody else will invest, or certainly probably wouldn't invest if, unless we went that went there with them. Um, so we are, say, a bit, a bit of an extreme, very exciting extreme, and a very really, really uh, worthwhile extreme. But thankfully, impact investment is now becoming uh, a much broader, a much bigger industry as well. I think at one level it does take um, a different uh, mentality to the, if you like, traditional red-blooded uh, shareholder return-seeking. Uh, version of uh, of investing that certainly I grew up with, um, and most of us who are in our late forties, fifties, or sixties uh, will have grown up uh, with uh, uh, with the with the um, influence of Milton Friedman. But I think it's a mentality that pretty much all investors are going to have to embrace, or at least to to, to learn. Because um, though it sounds a, it sounds a bit over dramatic, um, but I don't think capitalism as the current Western iteration. Of capitalism is sustainable uh, if there isn't a fairer allocation of the returns uh, that uh, that the, the, the come from that come from enterprise. Capital has had fantastic returns over the last forty years, um, but at the expense of, of other stakeholders, particularly um, labour or work, workers, uh, and particularly uh, other people who are involved in society that are not a, not able to participate in those organisations. Um, and I have to say, I don't think that system is sustainable. And we're starting to see, sadly, some worry, worrying signs that I might be right. It's one of the things I don't really want to be right on. Um, but some of the uh, unrest in around, around the world demonstrates that the level of inequality that the red-blooded capitalism that we've that we've been part of, which I've benefited from hugely, many people have, but the number of people who have not uh, is, I think, now too great. Uh, so I think unless I say it sounds rather grandiose, but unless capitalism embraces this, and unless the investment community, particularly, uh, invests the idea, uh, embraces the idea that they are there not just to serve shareholders, um, but to serve other stakeholders and, and to, serve, to serve society, um, then I think there will be a a, a more existential threat uh, to, to to the system of Western capitalism. In terms of, as you say, I'm sure there may be some listeners who've not really experienced or not really don't know much about impact investment in very simple terms because I like simple simple descriptions uh, it's about investing money with the expectation of a financial return but also with the strong expectation of tangible they're difficult to measure but nevertheless tangible uh, social impact impact improvements as well so whether that be through employment or housing or support for minority groups uh, or um, uh, the, the the less privileged less privileged groups in society, it can vary. Uh, but is the the idea is that you're using your money to get a return, uh, but also to improve uh, society as well. Thank you. It's a really very pithy description of it. And if people want to learn more, I'll put some links into the show notes as well, um, because it is a, a deep and increasingly evolving uh, sector. Yeah, absolutely. You have made made some conscious choices about how to spend your time. Are there is there a legacy, uh, whether it's in financial services or elsewhere, or a mark on, that you'd like to make on UK society um, that's informing the choices that you're making? I can't say I've got a particular legacy in mind, uh, Susanna. 
uh, I tell my coaching clients that the only measure of success that I am interested in them is them feeling more competent and more confident. Um, and I guess I could apply something along those lines to the organisations, including Big Society Capital, uh, that I'm that I'm involved in. So I want the organisations that I'm involved in to, again, a huge, awful cliche, but do the right thing to um, behave with corporate integrity uh, and to thrive in the medium and long term uh, uh, with success based on based on that, on that integrity. I am just amazed by actually how many different hats you wear. Uh, and I, I imagine sometimes it feels like, um, you know, a, a challenge to keep all of that organized, um, but also probably quite stimulating. And I'd be really interested to know if you have found ways to mentally and practically organize your time <laughs> and your your focus um, and are there any habits or um, approaches that you could share? Well, um, well, the first thing I should say in response to that question is the overwhelmingly most positive, the luckiest thing in my life is I have a, a wonderfully supportive life partner, happens to be my wife. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't live my life, let alone do the things I do uh, in my professional career without without her uh, amazing support. I think I'm, I'm sense fortunate, lucky again, in that I'm reasonably well organised. So if I feel, if I think about how I organise what I call my time, energy, and emotion, I am pretty structured. Um, I'm, re- I'm naturally reasonably well organised. Um, so I live my life around lists. Um, and then nothing, nothing better in in life for me than ticking, being able to tick something off my list. No, no, no particular rocket science to that. Um, but I'm really, I'm fairly cautious about taking on too much. Um, but also very support, very grateful for the support I get from my wife and family. That when I w- w- do end up spending more time than I should do in front of my computer over the evenings and at the weekends, uh, I don't get chastised too much. <laughs> yes, we are, we're none of us are islands, and uh, it's great to to hear you credit um, your life partner. It's, it's a huge um, aspect of someone's success, isn't it? Awesome. Yeah, and your distinction of time, energy, and emotion as sort of the three, uh, you know, sort of maybe dimensions um, that you filter uh, against it. That's really interesting. Is that something you think about daily? Is that, or do you think about it on a sort of weekly? Like what's your, what's your barometer set to? It's something I, something I developed when working with clients. Yeah. This was the natural thing. You just think about how you allocate your time. And my experience is it's much broader than that. And I'm not saying you can reallocate your emotions in a incredibly easy way, but I think being aware of, how how your emotional time or your sorry, your emotional um, quotient is being used uh, is really important. Mm. Uh, awareness then can heighten the ability to to perhaps red- redirect some of it. Um, and similarly, energy as well. And that's more more that can be as mundane as making sure you get enough sleep, making sure you have enough rest, and so forth. Um, so I think it just broadens out. Um, mm. So the 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 the, the, the typical um, approach to allocating your time, and in terms of uh, looking forward and the investment industry and what you've gleaned and um, harvested from your experiences, what piece of advice would you give someone aspiring to enter the investment industry today? If you were recruiting someone to be an apprentice to you, what might you look for in them? First of all, I'm not sure. I, not sure I advise anyone to join or enter the traditional investment management industry now. I was incredibly lucky. Lucky is a word that's come up a lot today, isn't it? I feel I was incredibly lucky to join the industry just as it was starting to professionalise and, and grow and, and, and then really um, burgeon uh, in, that was back in the 19, early 1980s. Um, and it's been a fantastic industry to work in. Uh, I do think the next few decades are going to be a lot less exciting and a lot tougher uh, than the last few last few have been. Um, so I guess the advice I would give to everyone is to make very sure that they know what they're getting into. Certainly the well, question where they want to be my apprentice, uh, but they're very, very keen, very clear what they're getting into. It's not going to be more, it's not going to be more of the same. Uh, I think they need to be very thoughtful about what sort of roles are going to emerge in what is an, almost inevitably going to be a smaller, less profitable uh, industry than it, than it has been. 
Um, in terms of what I would look for if I was looking to employ people, and there really is nothing, no, very little. I've got very little origin, original to say on this, uh, Susanna. But I think curiosity is by far the biggest um, uh, quality. I think in, 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 in it's important in, in investors, and curiosity combined with courage. Because uh, if, you, if you're going to be an active fund manager, uh, then I think you do need to be courageous, as we were talking about earlier, to live live with your failures, um, a bit like a surgeon. If something goes wrong, life life, go, life goes on, you move on to the next patient. And that's a little bit what you have to do in, in, in stock collection or asset allocation. You think the next decades are not going to be uh, as fruitful um, or as exciting or as easy in some ways. What, what do you think are the key forces um, that are changing that and um how within that are there any um subsets or subsectors where you think there's a more potential value or interest for people going into the industry yeah well why why do i think it's going to be a tougher place well i think when history books are written the last 15 years in particular will be seen as a massive outlier uh that's the low inf- low inflation and the, mon- the amount of mon- monetary morphine that has been pumped into the system uh, to keep us all to keep us all going um, that is not normal um, and it really frightens me when there's now a, a whole generation of people in, in 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 fairly influential roles who have only lived through that that period uh, and naturally tend to assume that interest rates of one or two or three percent is is what you should expect. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I think that's unlikely. Um, so I think we've been through a period of fantastic returns to to capital, uh, including um, well, obviously not including, but most notably uh, equities, uh, which has helped the industry grow uh, almost exponent exponentially. Um, so I think that will be different. I think returns are going to be lower. We're going to come to and we, we, we need to start to sort of realise what that means. Uh, at the same time, uh, regulation. And I'm not I'm not as anti-regulation as some people in the industry. I think um, in many ways regulation has been a positive force, um, but regulation is not going to get any less uh, vi- vi- vigorous, probably more vigorous, uh, and that has changed and will change the, the day-to-day operation or the day-to-day work that, 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 that investors do. And as I was saying earlier, this is not a popular view. Um, I think it's an overpopulated industry. Too many, too many fund managers and fund management organisations uh, doing things that aren't particularly differentiated or different to each other, uh, and that will, that in my view, it'll be a smaller industry in ten years' time than it is now. So going into it, you need to be, you need to be fairly, fairly brave, I think, or uh, and be get ready for some some rough times as well as the easy times that my generation has had. The areas I'm going to. Obviously, impact investment uh, is uh, is is the area to go into. I, I, I mean that very genuinely. I think it is a very very exciting time for people who are younger than me, because they will be younger than me, to be going into into the sector. As I was saying earlier, I think it is something that all aspects of, of the industry are going, going to have to embrace, almost whether they want to or not. I think most organisations do actually want to now. Um, they're going to have to whether they want to or not. So there will be huge uh, demand for people who've got. Um, capability and experience in in, in value in in, um, in impact investment. So that's what certainly one area to go into. The areas I think to avoid would be. I'd be surprised if private equity has uh, the next twenty or thirty years as good as the last twenty or thirty years it's had. So that I think has a has, has a has a question mark over it. Um, and to use a very technical term, what I call bog standard investment management, something things that aren't areas that are not particularly differentiated in the market. Uh, I think there will be a, a huge cull of products and services that don't really in, in, don't, are not are not differentiated and don't really add very much value. So I'd avoid those. I love your phrase, monetary morphine. Well, there are so many big questions that we've covered. Uh, sadly, only only glancingly, but really, really valuable insights. And thank you for sharing so much of your life experience. To wrap up, Robin, uh, in what I usually do is a few quick fire questions. First off, what is your favorite band, singer or album and why? Oh, heck. Um, I think I'm virtually tone deaf, but but nevertheless, music actually is very important to me. So it's quite difficult to choose, but it would have to be between something by 
Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, Van Morrison, or all of J.S. Bach's six cello suites. Is there a beloved film or novel that you've read or seen more than twice and why? Mm, another difficult one. I'm going to have to hedge my bets again and <laughs> say it would be one of uh, Dr. Zhivago, uh in the heat of the night and when, when Harry met Sally. What a great combination. The heat of the night and Dr. Zhivago is like two poles of the uh, thermometer right there. <laughs> um, so favorite quote and why, Robin? I'm going to go for Spike Milligan's brilliant autobiographical gravestone epitaph. I told you I was ill. So that resonates with your active listening skills. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. And finally, to shout out to another podcast, what is your, or if you have a favorite podcast, what is it and why? Okay. That, in some ways, that's an easy one, but I'm not sure it's exactly a podcast, uh, but I'm going to nominate The Archers because I'm an Archers addict. Uh, and I happen to know, some people think it's a soap opera. I know it's actually a real life documentary. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. The Archist is not featured yet on this podcast. So um delighted to get some old school radio on here. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's been a great pleasure. Much appreciated. Real pleasure for me too. Thank you very much. for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy, and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time.